This episode of Doty Land is dedicated to my dad, Royce Humphrey of Hancock, Wisconsin, who served in World War II in the Pacific Theater. My dad died on April the 11th, 2011, so as I record this podcast, we're close to the anniversary of his passing. I'll have a few more words to say about dad at the end of this podcast. This is Doty Land. Conversations from the Madison Isthmus. Here is Gregory Humphrey. Well, hello there, and welcome again from the Madison Isthmus to another podcast. It is great to have you along. As I record this, it is the middle of April, and we are in the midst of a pandemic. Everybody from Madison, Dane County, Wisconsin, the entire United States, and the world is suffering through this together. And we will get through this together, but we need to stay united. We need to follow the dictates as prescribed by the medical scientists and also by government officials. If we do that, we can get to the other side of this crisis. One of the ways that we can spend time indoors is by watching documentaries, and today that's going to be the topic. We have a a great person, a documentarian, a producer, and a director to talk with about a project. Before we get to that, I just want to say a real special thank you to Corey Kelvert, who has been instrumental to making sure that these podcasts get from this end of the studio into whatever you're listening to, your earpods or your iPad or your computer. I'm really glad to have his knowledge, his expertise. He has helped put together the studio portion, the nuts and bolts, if you will, of how I get from here to where you are there. When I was in radio, we had a console. It was about maybe five, five and a half feet long. All of the knobs, the tubes, the turntables, the reel-to-reel machines, the eight-track tapes, if you will, the carts, as we called them with the advertisements, all of that was arrayed around me. Everything that happens now is in a computer, an application, and it is a little bit of a mystery at times how to make it all work and then how to get it out of the computer through a mixer, if you will, and into a format that is workable so that you can hear it. But Corey has been a true friend. More than that, he's a smart guy, and I'm really proud to have him in my life, and I want to call out and really do a thank you to him today. We've got a great show. I'm urging you to stay tuned. And we're going to get to it all right after this. Pardon me, boy. Is that the Chattanooga choo-choo? Right on track 29. Boy, you can give me a shine. I can't afford to board a Chattanooga choo-choo. I've, I've, I've got my fare. And just a trifle to spare. Many people are reading books while others are watching documentaries as we self-distance during this pandemic. With that in mind, I thought it a good time to talk with an independent filmmaker. My guests have always sat at the round table in my broadcast studio, but with the times we are now in, virtual interviews will be conducted. I hope that all changes soon. So I want to welcome from Fargo, North Dakota, Stephanie Manassas from Zen Lily Films, a producer and director 
of a documentary about World War II. Welcome to Doty Land. Thank you, Greg, so much for having me on air. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. Before we get to the topic at hand, I would like you to sort of put a reporter's hat on your head, and I'd like to inquire a little bit about your community as we're dealing with something that is truly historic, this pandemic. I assume things are really quite chaotic there, but I'm wondering if you could tell us if people are self-distancing, wearing masks. What's the tone and mood of the folks in Fargo that you've encountered? Well, as you mentioned, I live in Fargo, North Dakota, and our numbers of coronavirus are fairly low to date, but people are taking it pretty seriously. We don't actually have a shelter in place yet for the state, which is a little surprising, but for the most part, people are staying home. All the stores and restaurants and bars are closed, um, except for obviously the grocery stores and the pharmacies, etc. So people are going out and about. A small percentage are wearing masks. Not a lot of them are wearing masks to date. And people are definitely social distancing. I think some of the younger generation, though, is maybe not social distancing as much as the older generations. So Fargo sounds like it's a template for much of America in terms of people taking it seriously, but not enough, perhaps, as we would like. And then the certain segment of the populace not adhering because maybe they just feel invincible being in their 20s. Yes, I think that's very true. Well, I'd like to talk to my listeners just a moment before I ask you the first question, because I've known you for a number of years, and so I'd like to give my listeners a little bit of a description of you, and I I really ask that they trust me on this, because you're quite a unique and very intriguing woman. You have worked in marketing. You are, uh, have been a teacher, you have artistic skills, you are a sculptor, you work as a consultant, you have so many varied parts to your life. So, Stephanie, what made you say one morning when you woke up, hey, I'm going to dive into, I don't know, how about filmmaking? Well, actually, that comes with a little bit of a story. My best friend has a daughter who's very intuitive, and I originally was going to write a book about 15 stories of compassion between enemies on the battlefield in World War II. And my good friend's daughter, who I mentioned is very intuitive, her name is Liz, and Liz said to me, Stephanie, I see you making a documentary. And I said, documentary? I've never done anything like that before in my life. Well, I took her words to heart, and for a couple of months I thought about it, and I thought, she's right. If I'm going to go out and interview these people for a book, I might as well put them on camera. So that's where the whole idea of a documentary started, and I just decided that I would do it, even though I didn't have any previous experience and make sure I get really good people on my team so that I'd have a really high-quality documentary. And when you were coming up with this idea, had you already had a lot of experience in terms of just being a a watcher of documentaries? Were there certain documentaries that popped out to you? Were there certain artistic skills that others employed in their documentaries? Was there a certain artistic quality that you hoped to emulate, perhaps, in your work? Greg actually I wasn't a big watcher of documentaries and still I started to make my own documentary um so you know I can't say that before I made this decision I hadn't been watching a lot of them and I didn't really have a particular style that I was looking for but I have kind of a sense of what I want the documentary to be about when it's all done as you have been working on your project both as a producer and director do you find yourself thinking as you see perhaps certain things play out in life, or you think of new thoughts, or you've come across interesting people. After I finish this documentary, I have another idea. Do you think there's another documentary in you? Actually, there's lots of documentaries in me. I have lots of ideas. Um, The biggest challenge actually has been raising money for my documentary. 
So if that were not as challenging, I probably would go off and make several more documentaries after this one. But I actually want to take this theme of compassion between enemies and between comrades and self-compassion after the war. That's the theme of my documentary for World War II. I would love to do it for the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and then more present-day conflicts. And you were mentioning um, the title of your uh, project. Is it called Compassion on the Battlefield in World War II? Or... Yes, that's correct. And how did you come up with that? And is it sort of like, so I wrote a book, and the title of the book actually came at the end of the project, as opposed to putting a title and then fitting the narrative, if you will, around a title. How does it work in the world of documentary making? Is it something that is at the forefront or the end of the result of your production and you're talking with people and gathering footage? Well, right now it's actually a working title. So I'm anticipating that once I get the documentary together, I will actually brainstorm with my creative team and we'll come up with a different title to use for the documentary. So it's for me, it's kind of at the end game of things. I'd like to um, take our listeners a little bit behind the scenes of what you do. So most of us probably are very familiar with Ken Burns, the Civil War series, FDR, World War II, a series of wonderful documentaries that he puts together. And we see the end result, and we sit there, and it seems so seamless and so effortless. It is sort of like writing. You often think that, oh, I could do that. You read a nice paragraph or a nice page from your favorite author, and you think, wow, I could do that. But when you actually sit down, it's very difficult. The same with, and I'm not putting myself on any pedestal here, but broadcasting is the same type of thing that people say, well, that's not so hard, but then talk for 60 seconds without hemming and hawing, and you find out how difficult it really is. So now I want to take our listeners behind the scenes with what you do. How did you set up filming situations that were placed in, well, Europe? Britain, I believe, had some footage. Germany had some footage. How did you go about collecting that visual imagery? Well, in terms of the filming that was done, there was filming done, you're right, in the UK and in Germany. And that was actually done by my director of photography who was overseas doing some filming for me at the time. He was doing another project, and he did some filming for me. Um, and then the rest of the filming has been stateside, and I have filmed 10 veterans to date and three experts. I'll probably only use five of those veterans in the actual documentary because it's going to be a short, a 26-minute short. Set that up for my listeners in terms of how do you go about contacting individuals that you spoke with that are veterans? Are these people that you read about perhaps in a publication, a newspaper? How did you not only locate the veteran, but locate the correct veteran to talk about the topic at hand, compassion during military conflicts? Well, I'll share a story with you. My very first veteran that I found for my documentary was actually kind of an interesting story. I was, this was back in 2012, and I was very nervous about how I would find stories of compassion between enemies on the battlefield. And I had a talk with the universe, and I basically said to the universe, if you want me to do this documentary, I need you to help me find veterans that will fit these stories. And about four or five days later, I went to a Memorial Day um, event in Fargo-Moorhead, and I was walking down the sidewalk to go to the event. It was at a cemetery, and I saw a gentleman with a POW cap on, and I kind of raced up to him and started talking to him, and it turned out he was a World War II veteran. And literally on the sidewalk, before we even got to the event, he stopped and shared a story of compassion between enemies with me on the sidewalk. And that was about four or five days after I had kind of put my prayer out to the universe. 
So that's how I found my first story. And then one of the other stories I found from a newspaper article, and then several others were actually me cold calling. So I did filming last May in Kansas, and I filmed five veterans, and I must have cold called about 400 phone calls trying to find the veterans with the stories. So a lot of it was just me calling everybody I could that was affiliated with veterans to find the right stories. And when you were doing those cold calls and talking to a wide variety of people that had served in the military and observed probably military action of in the war-type um, environment, what kind of feedback, when you talked about what you were hoping to produce as a documentary, what type of feedback did they offer to you? Um, most of them were pretty open to it. Some, some of the veterans, when you say that you're doing compassion between enemies, may not necessarily want to be talking about that or feeling that as kind of their style. But for the most part, most of them were pretty open to discussing with me on the phone if they had any possible stories that might fit my film. Um, I have found that probably 15, 20 years ago, a lot of World War II veterans were not talking about their experience very much. But as they've gotten older and their very senior years and their 90s or late 80s, they all of a sudden want to start getting some of this stuff off of their chest. I can echo that from my own father, who for most of my life would only go as deep as saying war is hell as his way of talking about World War II. And it wasn't until the final years of his life when uh, we were all gathered uh, during a holiday gathering uh, on a summer for cookout, and we all were in the garage because it started to rain. But he opened up and started to tell in specific details where he was, what he saw, some of his stories. But as you say, it's something that is in the psyche of the World War II veterans that they don't open up. I think they feel, well, they've served and they almost compartmentalize some of the horrors that they experienced. Kind of curious, do you do most of your work when you get into your creative mode? And I ask this of people who write and people who are creative in one way or another. Do you find yourself more creative in the morning, at night? Where do you find your creative juices flowing? And is there a time when you say, I'm really carving out this period of the day because this is where I'm most creative? Um, I actually find I'm most creative in the middle of the night if I can't sleep. And I don't use that creative time very often because my sleep is really important for my health. Um, however, if I'm not sleeping in the middle of the night and I get up and write, I find that's when things flow the most and I have the most beautiful prose. That's wonderful. I'm kind of curious about something, and I want to ask my question by leading off with something I experienced. When I was last in Washington, D.C., I saw a photo in a museum. It was a black and white photo. It showed a handsome young East German soldier lifting barbed wire to a small boy. The small boy would climb through and be reunited with his family. And what I recall about that picture was the focus of the soldier's eyes, as if he knew there was only a split second to do the right thing. And we might argue that right thing is moral. We might say it's compassionate. But take that one step back with your interviews, with your production, your documentary. What that picture conveyed to me was that compassionate acts must also jeopardize at times military careers. Is that something that you're looking at and fixated on or analyzing within your documentary? The compassionate acts that I've had so far have not necessarily risked put people at risk for their careers, but they definitely can. If you look at like World War One, and if you look at the Christmas truce, which a lot of people have heard of before, where there was a Christmas truce between the Axis and the Allied side, there were a lot of repercussions for their careers for those people that partook in it. So it can definitely happen. The particular stories that I've had 
there wasn't necessarily any repercussions, um, but that doesn't mean that they, that they didn't happen somewhere some at some time. After watching the film, once you have it, do you say in the can? Is that the term that filmmakers use? <laughs> once you have the film out and people are watching it, what do you hope will be the internal dynamics of the person who watches it? What, what do you hope a viewer will say or feel or think about once the credits roll at the end of the production? I hope that readers or viewers will actually think about the fact that in the midst of all the cruelty and carnage of war, that the human spirit really exists and really stands strong. And that even though we don't think about war as compassion, that compassion acts can take place in war. And so I hope the viewers can realize this and it can bring up questions as to, well, if we can go to war, how can we also decide to put down our weapons and have compassion acts? What does that mean for the broader picture of humanity? As a historian, or might I say as a history buff, uh, although I sometimes think after all the decades that I've been reading, I probably um, can call myself a historian, but I think you have a most compelling documentary. Before you had this idea, and we've talked about this idea for um, a couple of years now, you and I on the phone, and desirous to see you complete this because I think it, it speaks to something that needs to be addressed. But before you brought this to my attention, I had never thought about compassion in the way that you talk about it in regards to military and warfare. So I think you're serving a, a, a real niche that needs to be filled as we talk about this type of a, of a subject. I'd like to ask, you mentioned the uh, funding mechanisms that makes projects like this so doable, um, not only for yourself, but documentarians across the land, the world, always need to have funding. If a listener of this podcast were to say, I like this topic, I want this to be concluded into a final product, what can they do? How can they reach out to assist you? What mechanisms do you have in place that if they wanted to help with funding, how, where would they turn? They can go to my website. My website is zenlilyfilms.com. That's Z-E-N, like the word Zen, and then Lily, L-I-L-Y, and then F-I-L-M-S dot com. And if they go to zenlilyfilms.com, they'll see an orange button in the upper right-hand corner that says Donate. And they click on that, and there is a couple steps they need to just read about to follow, and then they can donate that way. I would strongly encourage my listeners to follow what the, um, the, the means are to get to the website and to help fund I also want to just say that Dodie Land has a Facebook page and the information for making contact uh, with the, um, the, the film uh, and doing something positive will be up and it can be seen there. Along with, I believe you have a YouTube uh, footage uh, of about three minutes. Is that correct? Yes, I do have some footage on YouTube. Um, also, I failed to forget to mention to you that the donations are tax deductible. I do have a 5013C status. So if anybody donates, it is tax deductible. Well, that's wonderful. And I just want to conclude by saying one final question. But before we get there, I just want to thank you for what you do, uh, for the passion that you bring to your projects. You're bringing passion to this project, as I have seen you bring to all your other endeavors. So I wish you the best. And I really would encourage my listeners to lend a hand and help make this project come out as you desire it. Final question, Stephanie. What are you doing during this pandemic, during this time of crisis, to remove stress, anxiety? What do you do each day to find your inner peace? And I think there's a lot of people out there who are bombarded with the news. Not that the news doesn't need to be reported, but there doesn't seem to be anything other than news that weighs us down. So what do you do to find your inner calm? If Because I know you're a very 
introspective and uh, creative person outside, but I know that you also have this center and this piece about you. What would you say to our listeners about how to get through the present crisis? Well, I meditate every day pretty much, Greg, and I also do deep breathing practices and spiritual practices in the morning, and so that helps me stay calm and centered. And I remind myself that I can only control what I can control in my own little world. And so I don't allow myself to spend a lot of time on worrying. I do worry. I'm, I am worried now more than I normally am because of this situation with the pandemic. However, I allow myself just a little bit of time a day to worry. And then I just put it aside and focus on what it is that I'm doing to enjoy my day. Well, I want to thank you. You're the first interview that I have completed in a virtual sense. And you have been most inspirational, you've been uplifting, you've been informative, and I'm really hoping that your project is concluded soon so that everybody can see it and come to know you through your work. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Greg. I wish you well with your podcast. Poor buttermilk sky, I'm a-keeping my eye peeled on you. What's a good word tonight? Are you gonna be mellow tonight? Oh, buttermilk sky, can't you see my little donkey and me? We're as happy as a Christmas tree, heading for the one I love. Hoagie Carmichael and Buttermilk Skies coming your way from the Madison Isthmus. That was Dad's favorite song. Mom would often talk about during the time that she and Dad were dating when that song would be on the radio and the music would be turned up louder. Dad served in World War II in the Pacific Theater, and the one story that he told more than any other was the time that General MacArthur came to review the troops. It was a Sunday. It was hot, excruciatingly so. The men were all in uniform. They lined up hours in advance of MacArthur's arrival, and because of the heat and humidity, people were dropping like flies. And when Dad was telling the story, you could tell that he wasn't quite certain where the logic was to have men who were in uniform, destined to be fighting, to be falling and becoming unconscious, basically, due to the heat, and what would that do to their fighting ability or their ability to serve down the road. So that was always a story that was of some interest to me. And, of course, to hear that MacArthur came with his jaunty style as he sat in the back of a Jeep and paraded through doing a review of the troops, it is easy to see how a kid would find a story like that rather engaging and would want it to be told over and over. And that was pretty much the extent to Dad regaling any stories from the days when he served in World War II. He just wasn't the type of guy to go back in time and relive that period of his life. I think it was a time when it was pure hell. He often said that war is hell, and that was pretty much a summation of his military experience. But I think he told the military story about MacArthur over and over to me because I enjoy the historical aspect of it. But other than that, Dad was not a military-minded guy. He wasn't a rough-and-tumble type of guy. In fact, he was very much the opposite. He was always a helping hand at VFW events, Porky Pancake Breakfast, and I recall during the Iraq War when we invaded Iraq that it was a corned beef and cabbage fundraiser, and I was up near him, and somebody came up and asked if I had served in the military, and he said none of his children had served in the military. He had seen enough war for the entire family. That was Dad. And it was also a part of his life that he had served. He was proud of it, but he didn't wear it on his sleeve. And I think that he was pretty much hoping that mankind would never again have to see what he had to see and what others like him saw during those years in World War II. He served for 40 years on the Hancock Town Board as a town board supervisor and dedicated his life to making his community better. So 
in summation, who was Dad? If he wasn't the military guy that so many come to see in certain movies and films and books, and we hear about this mindset, and he wasn't anything like that, yet he served his country faithfully, who was he as a man back at home? My first book was called Walking Up the Ramp, and in it, I pulled two paragraphs for this podcast, which best exemplify who Dad was, and I'd like to read them to you and end the podcast in this way. If I now have a soft spot for hungry little animals on our lawn, it would come from my dad, who made sure every year the wild turkeys would have corn to eat in an area in the woods where they came to scratch and peck around. He never hunted them or wanted harm to come their way. When the icy crust of snow would prevent the turkeys from finding any food would be the time dad would be lugging a pail of corn to the woods, and he did this year after year. On Thanksgiving and Christmas, my mom would get a skillet out and put this or that into the mix, add some milk, and warm it up on the stove. Then my dad would take it out to our field and feed some cats that lived across the road. I still recall my mom making a holiday meal for the cats and my dad helping to deliver it. In the high snow months, my dad even made a path down to the field so one of the smaller cats would walk easier to the place where he fed them. Just a reminder that all of the content that is on today's program, from music to interviews to links to how to find out more about the documentary mentioned and other things, can be found on my Facebook page for Dodie Land. So become a friend to Dodie Land, venture in and find out what is going on with my podcast and also with things related to this episode. And thanks a lot for joining us on Dodie Land. (laughs) 